This is a topic-based podcast, so each episode we're going to tackle a different issue facing board games, the people who play them, and the industry. Today we have the pleasure of talking to the wonderful Jess Cassidy, who is known for a great number of things, including her work on Lovelace and Babbage, her tireless convention attendance, and being an overall wonderful person and positive voice in our community. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tabletop Inquisition podcast. Hello Antoinette, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Oliver? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. We've got another interview guest. Um, exciting stuff. It is, we haven't had some interviews for a while now. Um, and today we are speaking to someone I think people will probably know. I don't think that this person needs a big introduction, but she is a board game developer. She has worked on a game called Loveless and Babbage. Um, she has appeared on a, a YouTube channel as well. You might know her from there. But there's also things that she's known for. We'll, we'll try and find out more about. And, and the, her name is Jess Cassidy or Jessica. I don't know. What, what do you prefer? Um, well, most people just walk up to me and say, hey, board game girl. So there's that. Um, <laughs> okay. But Jess Cassidy, yes. Yeah, well, welcome on the show. Thanks very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you've been quite busy. I think you've just come back from PAX East, is that right? That is true. That's my home convention. Um, the first one I ever attended and kind of uh, got me into this hobby as well. So it was definitely like going home again, which coincidentally is their their kind of motto is uh, – another home okay or welcome home oh. originally so yeah. yeah so i just came back from home to home no, that's, that's all right that's, <laughs> that's lovely, so it? it wasn't wasn't too far away then so no much, like 20 minutes journeys yeah things. yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty convenient yes well what we do normally on this podcast when we do interviews and we speak to people we start with some light questions just to you know get get to know the person a bit more and find out a bit more about you and if you don't mind, I'm going to start with the first question, Antoinette. Absolutely. Take us away. Okay. So the first question is, Jess, what color crayon are you? Oh, this is a good one. So I am definitely <laughs> green. I'm, a, I'm the green crayon. Um, that's been my color my whole life. Like I've always identified with green. But as a side note, I'll say whenever anybody mentions like a crayon color, my dad was kind of a character and he had we had all these inside jokes and my if if you asked my dad that question he'd quietly look at like the youngest kids in the room and say shit brindle brown so i apologize for the swear in that <laughs> but it's not really a swear cuz it's literally a crayon color that did exist and of course we'd all laugh oh, wow. and like be like that ah. yeah. but it it literally was a crayola had that color crayon um i'm wow. not kidding like wow. way back in the original box so he would always like yeah. make us laugh that that was his favorite crayon and uh but i'm green i'll go with green okay excellent so kind of leading on from the green theme would you rather go for a walk in the hills or maybe on the beach instead what would you prefer this is really difficult for me because i go to the beach regularly especially up here um in kind of uh, northeast uh, u.s there's some great beaches and I love to go to the beach to like get my zen watch the waves um, and play in the surf but I grew up in the hills of Vermont and that's where my family is from so I'd have to say hills um, 
even though I love both. Ooh. Okay. Okay. I like that was a tough question. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's it. you're a classy lady when you can't decide between both. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're, they're tough options. Yes. Can I have hills adjacent to beach, please? Let's just do it all. That's absolutely fine. You, know, you should oh, come I to like the that. south coast of England. We've got the cliffs, you know, the yes. cliffs of Dover and all that. So we've got hills and beach. You can do both. Yes. So come and visit us, us, visit us down here. <laughs> <laughs> now, Given that it's sort of just after lunchtime where you are, um, if you had something to eat right now, what would it be? Okay, so this is a funny one, too, because the answer to that is always coffee, even though, you know, I'm not technically <laughs> eating the coffee. Um, what I always yeah. want is coffee. And then it's just what is going to be coffee adjacent, whether it's oh. like, you know, depending on the time of day, am I like settling down with coffee? And so I'm going to have like some crackers with it or cookies. All right. Or is it like the start of the day and I'm going to have breakfast with coffee? Yeah. But no matter what it is, there's going to be coffee involved. Good. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like a good answer. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. As someone who's only recently discovered coffee, I can kind of see where this might end up someday. Oh. Like at your levels of coffee, because that sounds amazing. And this is, you know, and we'll talk about like uh, how I went to all these conventions. You don't always have have surprisingly enough in the united states a starbucks nearby so okay. if you don't have like a way to get good coffee i had i had to get to a point where i would bring caffeine pills with me just in case <laughs> like yeah. i wow. couldn't get caffeine for my coffee or it wasn't highly caffeinated enough so yeah, yeah. these are like your backup plans so yes it's a slippery slope <laughs> <laughs> fantastic okay so this next question is actually also the title of a board game um so if you had a choice what would your dream house be like oh goodness if i had a choice it would actually be relatively small like a cabin in the woods which kind of goes back to the hills question but something yeah. kind of where i could get away something isolated trees all around um, and just small. I always look at these big houses that people are building going up, these kind of uh, mansions that are sprawling. And I'm like, who cleans that? Like that yeah, is going to yeah, take yeah. so much of my time. And I much <laughs> yeah. rather, I mean, I live my life as a Euro. So it's very much like, how do I manage resources optimally? And, <laughs> you know, spending all that time yeah. cleaning this huge house just seems really not fortuitous and then the fact that again yeah. back to board games like i play board games to actually spend time with the people in my life and you have these huge sprawling places i feel like you would probably never even see each other like you're you're yeah, way yeah. on the other <laughs> side and i'm like calling you on the cell phone so yeah, yeah. tiny little <laughs> cabin in the woods would be awesome i often dream of like tiny house living oh, i was nice, just gonna yeah. ask you that actually yeah would you be a proponent of like the tiny house kind of movement then Absolutely. would you think could you imagine yourself living in such a small space with board games i think it's the part i can't fathom where <laughs> would board the games, games yeah. go well i could live in it but. yeah so here's the thing so you know there's definitely key board games that i could just play over and over again so i'd probably have a much smaller col collection and i think i'd be okay with that and then because i have so many friends especially near boston here that have huge collections of games so i'm well known for buying games and them remaining and shrink forever right, and the thing yeah, is yeah. it's yeah. not that i don't play them i just end up playing my friends copies because they all get these games too 
So I do enjoy the games and I bought them for a reason. It's just that I never actually get to play my copies. So as long as this <laughs> fictional house in the woods was close enough to get to my friend's game nights, I'd be fine. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty cool. That sounds good. Pretty cool. Now I know we're going to talk about this a bit more later, but just briefly, what was the source of your board game interest? This is a long one. So this spans kind of over the course of my life. Um, When I was young and visiting my dad's family up in Northeast Camden, Vermont. They had a habit there. He was one of 12 kids and um, they had a habit of getting together daily to play games. Um, On Sunday, it was bingo. But on other days, it was uh, 31, a card game where you're just trying to get to 31 instead of, say, 21. Um, And so they would play this game for nickels. None of the kids were allowed to play. But one day I kind of climbed in, I think I was four years old, climbed into my dad's lap. And they used to kind of, you know, give each other a really hard time lots of ribbing in the game of like you don't know what you want you don't know what i have like you know back and forth and so the kids weren't allowed to play because they'd cry when when like you know aunt eleanor was like hey you know you don't you you got nothing over there so you know it was for the adults but i started like ribbing them and you know looking at my dad's hand and being like ah we got this and like just because i had heard them doing this (laughs) and they were like oh the girls got chops like let's do this and so I was allowed to play. So I would play 31 with them and I adored it and got pretty good Okay. in the group. I mean, they still, they did not take it easy on me. So I still was winning like one out of 40 hands. But, yeah. you know, sometimes I could manage it in and um, yeah, we had a blast. So I started with gaming back with them, almost gambling, right? So we did that and then, and I had my own nickels. Like they didn't, again, take it easy on me. Like I would lose my nickels and that was it. I was out. Um, Bit of pocket uh, money there then. Right. And I also learned from that kind of how to count cards because I would go to look at this discard pile. I put my hand out to kind of see what had been played. And my aunt Eleanor, again, she would like slap my hand and she would do this to all her brothers and sisters as well, but me as well. And she would slap my hand away and be like, if you don't remember then you don't know. Like, you don't get to look. Okay. You have to remember that. It's it's not for you to look through. So I learned serious game rules early. Um, <laughs> and I was fine with that. So that's where it kind of began. I got into a trick-taking game called Rook, was how my mother actually would punish me as a child, would be taking away my Rook deck. Um, she tried everything else. She would be like, you're grounded. I'd be like, that's fine. I'll read. She'd be like, you're not going out with your friends. I'm like, again, that's fine. I'll read. And she'd be like, no TV. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I'll read a book. Like, so she couldn't punish me until one day she took away my rook deck and I was like, no, wait, what? You can't take this from me. (laughs) And so she realized, oh, this is the power, right? So she started to use that, you know, I'm going to take your rook deck away. I'm going to take your rook deck away. Be really upset about it. So one day I had the opportunity to buy off a friend another rook deck. So now I had two. I hid it under my bed, but I was not smart about this. I think I was probably about seven years old. And so she went to punish me. I'm going to take away your rook deck. And I laughed. And I was like, ah, go ahead. And she's like, where's the second one? 
where is it? <laughs> she knew immediately. And I was like, darn it, I Excellent. played that poorly. <laughs> like that was not a good bluff, Jess. So again, learning bluffing rules really, really early. Um, but yeah, so I was involved in games as a kid, but life happens, right? So then you're in mm-hmm. school, I'm, I'm worried about you know college, SATs, all of this, working. Didn't really have time for games again until later on in life. I had a friend who was really into board games and we started playing things like Imperial Assault and other games that he would pick up that were just really immersive and fun. Dead of Winter was another one um, he played a lot. So I got back into games and started playing modern board games uh, with him and we'd have board game nights And then a local game store opened up uh, near us and we started spending board game nights there. That kind of opened up the library per se, like there were a lot more options. And then I went to my first PAX East and I remember enjoying that convention so much. I found Tesla versus Edison, the board game there, which I love the story of Tesla um, had yeah. followed it and read a lot of books about him. And so I was like, this exists. There were board games about things that I love and I love history and I found more. So I got really excited about it. And then I think it was Sunday of that first PAX, my friend said to me, okay, you know, you're really happy right now, but watch out for con letdown tomorrow. You're going to be really depressed tomorrow. Oh. And I was like, No, I'm not. I'm so happy. This is great. I'm going to play all the games I bought. Everything's fine. And I remember the next morning at like 7 a.m. writing to him and being like, this is awful. When's the next con? Why? Why are there not cons every day? I, I don't know what to do with myself. I've spent the last like four days in con mode. I don't know what to do. And he was like, haha, this is what happens every year. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of had this idea that I want to join this industry. I'd been looking for um, returning to work. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to do something adjacent to this. So my primary goal being I'll never experience con letdown again, like that I'll always be somehow involved and intertwined with this. And it just so happened that later that year, my love for that Tesla versus Edison board game I picked up uh, that was published by Artana Games I, you know, had started this uh, Instagram channel and was reviewing games on that and they saw it and asked me if I wanted to volunteer at Gen Con for them. And that was how I joined the industry was basically based off this, you know, trajectory of attending my first convention. We'll have to go a bit deeper into that a bit later as well, Mm because I think that's going to be really interesting to find out more about that. Thanks Mm -hmm. very much. Yeah, that was great. Though I love, I love hearing people's backstories, especially right? when families introduce people to board games. They always seem to find their way back to them. Yes, yeah. I always think because it was such an amazing thing, isn't it? Like the family who games together stays together. Very all that true. Malarkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to jump into the next question, um, and this is one we probably know the answer to. But um, what color meeple would you pick? It's green. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. It is green. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was short and sweet. Yes. Yeah, and, exactly. and my claim for, well, my claim to fame in that is that um, I played games with Friedman Freeze and he let me play green. And you, if you know Friedman, uh, he's yeah, huge yeah, into yeah. green, obviously. All his yeah. game boxes have green. He has green hair. <laughs> and I say this, like I throw this out there, like he let me play green. He wasn't playing. He was leading the game. Um, and he did say, like, <laughs> right, if yeah. I was playing, it's on. We'd have to figure out how to duel 
for for the color. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah. I am a green, <laughs> green meeple. Uh, green is a nice color. It tends to be my favorite as well, I suppose. But yeah, so uh, next question then is, if there is people who maybe not used to modern board games, what's the sort of game you would show to them? Um, well, that's changed over time. Uh, so, you know, I might have years ago introduced them to something more basic, like maybe started playing card games with them like I had, because I feel like, you know, a deck of cards can do anything. So pulling out a deck of cards yeah. and maybe playing 31 or playing spades or something like that originally may be how I would have tested the waters with somebody. Yeah. And you know, even something that's more like an IP that they'd be familiar with, like Imperial Assault or um, uh, something like Dead of Winter, um, that is something that I think grabs people if you can bring them in by theme. So these days, in that regard, I got my cousins into playing uh, games because of um, the, oh, now I can't think of the name of it, the uh, Wingspan. So yeah. uh, they were just really into birding and birds. And I was like, all right, we should play this. And it's such a simple game to teach, really easy to get into. So they you know, were able to take to it really quickly. And of course, it's just gorgeous. So the production on that is good as well. I love so it those are the things I'd probably <laughs> look for. But then even just the experiences. So a little bit before that, I was doing things like the mind um, because the experience of that can be so great mm. when you know it seems simple I was cursing myself I didn't design it myself when I you know as every designer ever <laughs> has felt when they first yeah. played the mind because they're like really a hundred cards and it feels like this so it you know it's just an amazing game for the experiences it creates out of such simple uh, mechanism so that was a great thing to kind of show people what you could find if you were going to, you know, play games together. That that same feeling I had as a kid playing 31 with my family, um, you know, kind of that, wow, we did this together. Or, oh, I beat you or this, you know, yeah. those feelings um, of camaraderie, but also, you know, competitiveness. And the nice thing about things like The Mind or Wavelength or, um, you know, some of those games, uh, De Crew or The Crew that uh, Thames and Cosmos yeah. is coming out with, being a little more cooperative um, or in Wavelength having teams, I think that helps bring people in without feeling competitive or feeling like, you know, there's an experience differential that they can't surmount. Yeah. So I'd look for games like that. It's good advice. Nice. Yeah. yeah. yeah good. Wingspan is amazing. My wife and I love it mm -hmm. uh, and got the European expansion as well obviously living in Europe and all that right and yeah just it is amazing and the mind as you say as well just the experience it's just you, you explain it to people and they look at you and go what right what do you do yes and then you start playing and they go oh this is crazy how, how does this even work? well that's the thing just, and just you brilliant. know my story with that is uh, actually Z Garcia I was I, I harassed him to play this with me uh, three years ago, I think, at Dice Tower West. And he was like, I don't want to play it. That's not a game, what have you. And I was like, sit down, we're yeah. going to play this. <laughs> and I'm showing it to him, and he's like, still not a game, still not a game. And then we ended up with you know certain cards, and we played it, and it was 15, 16, 17, 18, in order, back and yeah, forth. Yeah. And he just looked <laughs> at me like... What? How did we do? How? How? And like, you know, we high fived, and he's like, "Okay, that was fun. Like that, <laughs> that actually was good." And those are the experiences. And I get what people are saying of, "Oh, it's not a game," or "Oh, you're giving each other some clues." 
okay, but look at bridge, right? They've had to come up with tournaments mm, yeah. for bridge with all these rules to prevent people from telepathically telling each other what's going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's not a game. Like it's just it's exactly. just another level to it. Exactly. Oh. Okay, um, let's pop on to this next question. This one's I think I always think this is quite a serious question, despite it being the fun question. But we'll see what you yeah. say. <laughs> um, so, how would you deal with a dominant player in a game group? Because you've played lots of games with lots of people. So I'm hoping you have a bit of an insight. Well, (laughs) I think I do. But this is really what works for me. And I definitely can see that this doesn't work for everyone. And this is a bit of a serious question. So the people Mm. I game with out here in Boston, I game with the MIT game group. Um, These people are very serious about games. I game with engineers that work at MITRE and, you know, do government contracts. And these are people who are extremely well known in their field. Um, So you know, coders, designers, uh, actuaries that actually write papers that people studying, you know, for their CPA have to actually study. So these people are very, very smart. And in a game like an 18xx uh, or something with mathematical skills like that, where you're having to see the ramifications of your choices many turns out, they're incredible. They're incredible at this. So... But what I found is I those people are not the people I tend to have trouble with at all. Um, They tend to be very welcoming and happy to answer questions and teach you things. The people I find I have an issue with as dominant players are the people who actually know less about games. Um, And as an aside to kind of explain that further, I'll say I found the same thing about American football. If you meet a person who really is into American football and it's like the focus of their life and they're all in gear, they tend to not know a lot about the real rules of the game. And then yeah, yeah. you meet somebody who's kind of just chill about it and like, yeah, I really love my team and I focus on it. Da, da, da. If you can ask them questions and they're happy to answer it, I'm like, well, why was that offsides? I don't understand. Or, you know, why was that flag called? And what's the rule for this? And how did they make that decision? Those people will be like, oh, here, this is what I know about it. Or, oh, hey, I don't know, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't yeah. know the history of that or why that came out that way. And the more fanatic fans will be like, oh, I don't know. Don't ask me that. Yeah, If you don't know, I can't tell you. Which really <laughs> yeah. means I have no idea. I don't know what just happened. Yeah, yeah. And it's the yeah. same in board games for me. I will play with people um, that kind of want to feel like they have this power or influence in the game and they want to come across as knowing everything and they don't really Hmm. like it's and understand I don't think it's just boastful I think for them it's insecurity and so I approach it as kind of with a means of understanding of if you're being boastful like that if you're coming across aggressive in a game it's probably because you actually are uncomfortable and insecure about what you're doing mm. um, in the game. Yeah. And I feel like we've all felt that way. I know in some of the games I'll play, I'll be like, wow, I really don't get what I'm doing here. I have no idea what, how this is going to play out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really understand how the end game scoring is going to do, be, you know, especially in a learning yes. game. And we have to just jump yeah. in and try it. But for some people, that's really, really uncomfortable. So I approach that dominant player as there's probably a reason they're asserting dominance in this 
and kind of be understanding of it and maybe ask questions if they don't respond to that well then grab the rule book and just figure it out on my own do things but you know there is a layer of aggression that can happen that I just kind of won't tolerate um so mostly I make light of it or try to be friendly or try to calm them down but I can give one example of I was at a convention and Rising Sun was brand new it had just come out and they were setting up a game of it and I approached the table because it said players wanted and they were like oh you want to play great I knew some of the players at the table and I didn't know half and one gentleman like you know as I'm sitting down he's like well you want pink right because that's a girl color what a great way to start and I was (laughs) like "Mm." so my head's already cocked looking and I'm like hmm this is how it's going to be right and there's three guys at the table who know me well and they kind of backed away they they backed physically backed up like oh no (laughs) no that's not good and I was like sure we'll go with that yeah. And and they're looking at me because they know I'm green, right? They know, and they're like, yeah. "Oh, it's on! <laughs> Darn it! This is." But they're kind of like, uh, they told me they're like, "This is going to be epic, epic to watch. Like, forget the game. This is yeah, just going to yeah. be killer yeah, to yeah. see." <laughs> so, you know, especially it, I hadn't played it before. I had read the rules because I had backed it full pledge. I got everything for Rising Sun. Um, I love Eric Lang, so I had gotten everything. So, I'd read the rules. I knew enough about it took that player you know doing it uh, and yeah. playing the game i'm making some moves this player again you know dominant player he's like are you sure you want to do that oh. uh <laughs> is that really what you want to do and oh. he was totally negating like the end game scoring of at the area control he wasn't understanding he was looking more at like what can i do in this moment in score points and i was like yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you are really missing this but i'm not going to correct him i'm like yeah yeah i'm gonna go with that yeah i'm gonna go with that so we got to the end of the game, and uh, he came in second. I beat him by 50 points. Yeah, well. Um, <laughs> he was not happy about this, to say the least. So we counted up points. He kind of looked confused. And then he was like, that can't be right. We're going to have to do a recount. Because oh. <laughs> he was just not happy that I had beat him. Oh, so I stood up, and I said, you go ahead and do that. And I yeah. walked away and my three friends were just like, yeah, you go ahead. And they got up and left too. Well they done. were like, no. Yeah. And they apologized to me after the three. They were like, we didn't know what to do, but we knew you could handle yourself. And I was like, no, you did the right thing. I wanted to handle myself. Like mm. I wanted mm. to handle this situation and show him I could. Because if they kind of came in as white knights and were like, no, 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 don't be like this, this and this. So this is a tricky yeah, yeah. thing, right? But if they do that, that negates my ability to do that and he learns nothing um so this allowed me to kind of show him no you know girls can play um i might know something about this game you might not want to (laughs) make assumptions uh and honestly that was fun for me but again back to my point of i know that that's not for everybody for some people that would have been horribly uncomfortable that would have turned them off of gains completely and i hate that 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 is going to happen to people you know, these judgments that are made based on them sitting down. And it's not just females, though that happens a lot. You know, it's the guy in the Catan shirt where somebody's going to be like, oh, mm-hmm. really? You just play Catan? No, maybe he just likes yeah. Catan. Maybe he just likes the shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't have to make these assumptions about people um, or do that gatekeeping. So for me, I just usually either tend to ingratiate myself to the person, try to make sure everybody's having a good time. Or if you're really going to be egregious, 
then I'm going to probably pull out all the stops and ensure I annihilate you um, to kind of teach you a yeah. lesson. <laughs> so that's how I handle it. Nice. But again, not for everybody. Yeah. No, no. I like that. I like yeah, it. Me too. It's a great story. Sort of show them that it's actually possible that, you know, you know he does know everything. And yes. It is true, as I say, a lot of this sort of approach, as I say, often comes from insecurity. Yeah. And then uh, there's a few people who are just, yeah misbehaving and they yeah, need to be put in their place. Right. But again, it's usually that insecurity. And I think understanding that is what helps me deal with it better is, yeah. okay, they're not doing this because, you know, they, there's like this thing going on internally in them, the struggle that they're having. And understanding that makes me feel, mm. yeah. I realize it's not about me, um, which yeah. makes it yeah. easier to deal with. Good, yeah. Very true. Well, so. we come to the last question then. Um, I think we probably know what the answer is, but I'll ask anyway. Uh, do you have a preference when it comes to the weight of a game? Well, see, and see, I think I know what you think it is, but... <laughs> oh, God, here we go. <laughs> yes, see, I do love heavy games, and I definitely play them predominantly. Yep. I knew this early on when, you know, people would be like, all right, we're trying to come up with a Saturday to play 16 hours of Twilight Imperium, and I was, and and this is really difficult. And I'm like, why? Why is this hard? Like, just pick a Saturday, any yeah. Saturday, yay! And yeah. I was the person yeah. who was like upset when that certain card came out uh, that ended it after six hours, and I was like, no, no, <laughs> yeah, it's over. Yeah. Let's play again. We could we do yeah. again because it ended too soon, and yeah. So. I knew that I was not going to have a problem with games that lasted hours upon hours. I like that. I like immersing myself in a gaming experience and really getting to know the people at the table because that's really my point of gaming. Uh, so definitely heavier games have their place. But that really doesn't mean that I'm not going to enjoy a game that's lighter. What I've realized is the games that I fall for, the games that are in my top uh, tier of games are ones that have really, really, really solid development. Yeah. So my number one game is Ginkopolis. And it's not really about the mechanisms. It's not it's not about the theme, um, though I now love Ginkgo trees. <laughs> I love this game because it is the pinnacle of game development. Nothing in this game is wasted. Yeah. Everything is perfectly utilized. It's incredible. And to see something pieced together so perfectly with nothing tacked on, that to me is the pinnacle of a game. So it's really for me searching and finding games that are so well developed that it's just gorgeous to play um, and that you're almost mesmerized by how everything works together. Yeah, and I yeah. found that in Ginkopolis. I found that in 18xx games because the intricacy of how everything you do and every other player does matters immensely. Uh, that to me, you know, so that every single decision you're making, there's no, there's no overbalanced is what I usually say. Um, and for people who are newer to the hobby, to have a really well balanced game can be nice because no matter what decision you're left with or what decision you make, there's multiple paths to victory and you can't really make a catastrophic error. Yeah. But yeah. for me, I really want a game where you can die in the first turn, where that first action can mean you're out of it. And yeah. I understand that that's not for everyone, but I call it being splattered in a game because there's uh, yeah. you know, the publisher <laughs> splatter 
And that's the way their yeah. games are. Um, if you don't do the right thing once, it's over. And you're just watching the rest of the game play out. And you can make moves. It's not that you can't, but you aren't going to win or come even close yeah, to it yeah. because you've failed. I don't have a problem with that. Though I will say that in Food Chain Magnet, I do allow people who have completely destroyed their restaurant franchise, um, I let them shutter. So they like uh, ba- they they go bankrupt, and I I let them leave the game because yep. this game could go on for another two hours, and it's clear you're coming in last. And if you're not even yeah, going to yeah. change your position, okay, then you should be allowed to like close the business and go on to another game. So I you know I've told uh, Yarun, one of the uh, designers of that, that you know I do allow people to kind of go bankrupt and leave, and he's like, yeah, that that's fair. You know, you're if yeah, you're not going to yeah. have any impact, but other than that, I enjoy actually seeing it play out and watching other people play. Um, and learning that was what kind of led me to game development myself. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that rounds up those fun questions nicely. Um, and we've already started touching on some of the subjects. We'll uh, probably dig in a bit more deeper yeah. in our next section then. So. Yes, it's a good segue. <laughs> Yes. And I hate that word. I don't know why I use it, but I use it. <laughs> well, now it's it like means it's a vehicle. vehicle. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's two different It's a vehicle. Things. It's not really a means, a word. Yes. But yeah, I think, I think this leads over. nicely into the next section. There Let's you go. do that instead, shall we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. to the portion of the very serious interview where we have serious questions <laughs> quake in your boots be prepared it's going yeah. to be terrible right. oh, no. <laughs> of course yeah we're, you're we're, gonna we're make st- me cry like barbara walters right? like, like, oh, this is the inquis- inquisition part of yeah. the interview okay <laughs> <laughs> i've never actually got to do that to anybody yet where like i sit them down and i ask them a bunch of serious questions in a you rapid fire do. manner yeah. you know i the, yeah someday i'll get around to that but uh, we'll, we'll have to settle with you jess you're the next best thing right okay. now <laughs> okay all right okay so basically kind of leading on from something you mentioned earlier and i think it's actually a really important one is so when did board games for you become less of a hobby and more of a job opportunity i know you talked about like going to conventions mm-hmm. and about that very specific wonderfully cool um tesla and edison game yeah but where so where where did it go from there because that's a really big jump isn't it it is mm. and not one i was expecting to take you know i was sitting in my car waiting for my kids to come out of a uh, outdoor classroom uh, homeschool class one day and was like hey I think I'm going to start an Instagram account <laughs> and I think I will call it board game girl because yes. that seems good <laughs> I don't know and I had previously signed up for board game geek okay. as board game girl so I was like this is a thing great I'll do it not really thinking about how generic that was uh, or that there was any future to it other than just posting my thoughts about board games Mm. so you know this is right after PAX East my first uh, convention I started posting their pictures of games and my thoughts on the games and I love to write my history is in in literature so I uh, you know started writing these like clever little I thought um, short stories kind of about the gameplay and about the game and wrapping it up with you know some theory so I was having fun with it and it started to get traction a lot like I would gain hundreds of followers a week um, just it kind of took off and made friends in the insta gamer space and Mm -hmm. 
So I started posting about these games. And as I mentioned, I got Tesla versus Edison at PAX. So that got posted about. And I, uh, the day that I was posting about that, actually, Artana went live with their Kickstarter uh, for um, Tesla versus Edison Duel. Oh, yeah. And so I was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, coincidence. This is pretty interesting. So I wrote to them um, asking for a different, you know, as Kickstarter backers do, I had ideas. And I wrote <laughs> to them and said, you know, you need a different tier for people who already own the base game of TVE. Uh, and we should be able to get just the expansion and get dual and da da da. And they wrote back to me and were like, that's a great idea. We're going to do it. No problem. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, ooh, awesome. this is great. And so, you know, they, they spoke to me. So now it was on. I was like, and, and, you know, and started writing back and forth with Marcus, um, who was the CEO of Artana at the time. And so just writing back and forth with him, ideas, telling him how much I love the game, et cetera. Um, he reshared, you know, like my, my post, what have you. I was all excited. I'm like, oh. I'm on a I'm on their channel like this is great. So um, they put out a call for volunteers to help them at Gen Con that year. And <laughs> as I tend to do things, I, I don't do things halfway. So I responded to the survey saying, yes, me, 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 pick me. Yeah. I want to I want to come to Gen Con. Mm -hmm. And then I sent them an email, found their email address, emailed him. Right. And then I went on the Kickstarter where I had been conversing with Marcus during the Kickstarter and, and, and wrote to him there. Um, <laughs> and then I called a voicemail box that was set up and just, you know, hey, hi, remember me? Hey, you want to pick me, pick me, pick <laughs> yeah, yeah. me. And as things generally happen with me, he called me back just to get me to stop and calm down. And he was like, okay, okay, okay. I hear you. Let's do a Skype call so that I can see how you would go about like demoing the games and how you'd be. Okay. Because it does take, you know, kind of skill and I want to make sure you're personable and able to do this. We set it up. I, you know, ace the Skype call. Like I'm going through the demo and he's like, you're good. You got your, <laughs> you're fine. Yep. You're hired. Um, we'll have you out. So that's really, I was just going to be a volunteer. And he sent out a couple of documents that kind of detailed what you should wear in the booth, what you should expect in the booth, yeah. how you should be in the booth. And it was really, you know, it kind of said, like, we already have booth leads. We already have a person leading the booth, a booth manager. So you're really there to kind of just do what's asked of you, sit back. If we could not have everybody trying to lead, that would be great. And I was like, awesome. Sure, no problem. I'll just sit back. So I get there. And uh, I forgot my sneakers at home uh, was the first part of the story. So the first time I meet Marcus at Gen Con in the hotel lobby, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I forgot my sneakers at home. I have flip flops, but I promise you they're getting brought by my friend who is also coming to Gen Con. So he's yeah. picking up my sneakers. He's bringing them to me. I'm going to have the sneakers. Really, really sorry. And he looks down at his feet, looks back up at me, looks down at his feet. He's wearing sandals. And he's like. <laughs> You actually read that? Yeah. And I was like, yes, like I, a rule follower. I've got this memorized. And he's like, you're good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you're fine. Um, so, you know, he could tell that I was somebody who was going to take this seriously and not just showing up for like a free pass and like what have you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then we're setting up that day and I'm sitting back 
And again, I mentioned earlier, I kind of live my life as a Euro. So I'm trying to like just sit back and follow the rules. But I see them setting up in a way that is counterintuitive. So they were setting up the tables, but they hadn't put down the flooring yet. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. You're going to have to move all the tables in in my head, right? But I'm waiting because the rules said not everybody can be a boss. We have a manager. I'm like, okay. Okay, I'm watching. I'm watching. And I'm looking at Marcus, and he's just standing there watching too, letting his manager take care of it. And I'm looking at him. I'm looking at him. Finally, he comes over and he goes, you're doing a great job following the rules, but what do you think of this? And I was like, they need to put the, t- the floor down and the things and this, dude, the banner shouldn't be going up yet. And I like kind of just like, and he goes, mm-hmm. And he goes over to the manager and he's like, she's going to be your assistant. She's going to help you with this. So I got down, I grabbed all the floor tiles, Got, to, I told them, move all the tables off. Like, so at this point I just kind of took over and I... Um, you know, in my past life, I've always been a manager wherever I was. So I kind of have that in me. Right. And the manager of the thing was like, I'm good with this. You, you do, you do, you do you. I'm good with following you. So I kind of was like, took over booth lead by the second day. He was like, you're in charge of the booth. Anybody have questions? See Jess. Nice. (laughs) So I took over and I had a great time. And They pretty much called me. They were like, are you actually human or are you a robot? Because I never left the booth. I would get to the booth an hour before opening and I didn't leave the booth until an hour after. And I mean that sincerely. I didn't go to the bathroom. I didn't eat. I didn't leave. And this is on me. I made sure my staff did. They all took breaks and they'd be like, you're not leading by example. And I'm like, I'm not, but do as I say. And so they would go... And do things and, you know, have their breaks. But I stayed the whole time. I was just dedicated to this. And I loved it. I loved calling people into the booth. I loved showing them the games. I loved getting kind of my spiel down about, like, what was great about Tesla versus Edison, why I loved it, who could play it. I enjoyed it immensely. And just, you know, my face lit up the whole day. Everyone could see it. We had a wonderful time. Um, Genius Games was actually sharing a booth with us that time. And we became like family in like that four days. And, you know, stayed in touch. Like I knew their birthdays. Like so we had. Yeah, we were we were just it was great. So that's where I fell in love with like actually being in the industry. Not my plan. Was just going to volunteer, see what Gen Con was about. But by the end of it. Genius Games had said to me, if they don't hire you, we have positions open. I had other companies, and this is, you know, uh, a bad secret to to the industry, but if you see somebody in a booth who's running it tremendously well, you do try to poach that person. Yeah. <laughs> like, you go over and you're yeah. like, if they're not paying you well, no. I will take you. Because these, you know, it's hard to find really good demoers and people c- who can teach and explain games well. Yeah. So I had other offers and... Um, Marcus was like, we should have dinner and talk. And I'm like, we probably should because I have like four job offers. And he's like, no, you're mine. You're mine. <laughs> um, yeah. So we talked when we got back to Boston because they're local to here. And I I took a job with them um, as kind of their marketing director and moved into that space. So it was very quick after my entry into volunteering that I got hired into the industry and got to learn everything um, about how it works. And uh, Marcus and Dirk were great about teaching me the ropes, but also letting me run with it, um, making introductions and then saying, you you go with it and you do what you can do. So 
that was it. I mean, I caught the bug and then I was <laughs> was in the industry. The rest is history, as they say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, speaking of which, then, so so you started as the marketing manager, did you say, first of all? Yes. Yeah. And and uh, what was your responsibility at that point then? Were you looking after the, the products? Uh, what, what was it? Well, yeah, I had to learn everything about the products. I had to learn about where we warehouse them, what that was costing. We had a lot of back catalog that needed to leave. So I worked on finding sales and places for that. Like we had extra wood pieces that I found a publisher that they could, you know, that could use those. Right. Um, working with distribution, um, going to distri- distributor open houses, making sure that I was known by you know our contact person at these distributors. Yeah. I also started working with retailers and coming up with ideas for how we could get our games in museums um, okay. and yeah. other types of things. You know, because we, being historically based games, uh, these can also be used for homeschooling purposes or schooling purposes so i started getting in touch with schools and getting them approved on the homeschooling lists um which is really really difficult actually because it's not just one big organization it's many many small ones both for homeschooling and then really getting involved in the schools with principals but i'm good at farming information so i would think about who would have a list of all the principals in the united states (laughs) right yeah Mm, you know who yeah. you know I have kids who are going in and doing programs at schools oh yeah. Lego is I have a friend who works at Lego why don't I talk to Lego and oh, see well, if I yeah. see and they would have a list right so mm-hmm. I'd find these lists I I always believe in not reinventing the wheel so I would find these different lists I would um, compile things and just start going down them like start contacting people Um mm-hmm. And, you know, getting opportunities uh, for direct sales as well as the distribution of the Artana games um, and helping with that. And then we moved into development, Um, a new game, going to all these conventions. And I was managing their booth, obviously, because that was also part of what I was hired for. I started meeting people and um, Scott Alms reached out. For me to develop, I'd been recommended, I think, by Daryl Andrews, uh, who's a good friend of mine, uh, for development work. And so he came to me for development of a game that he had that he thought would fit with Artana. So I pitched it to Marcus and Dirk, and they were good with it. And they were good with me running the dev on it as well. So that was my first um, full dev credit. I had done some, uh, you know extensive playtesting and some on some games into the dev uh, development of those but as a team and this was my first um, solo dev work so I ran with that and just play tested like crazy and you know kind of move forward because what happens a lot of times with these publishing companies they're so small your title may be marketing director but you're doing a lot Everything. of other stuff yeah, yeah. you know I was helping them run the Kickstarters, I was doing their social media, I was, you know, doing all this uh, sales. So it was definitely um, extensive uh, as far as duties. But I liked that because I was learning so much all the time that I could use, you know, in the future as things move forward. I was going to say, it didn't sound like just a marketing manager. It's obviously no. a lot more no. involved. So. <laughs> yeah. Very, yes. Very interesting. Yeah, involved in that. Um, so 
as you're saying like as a, a game developer with smaller companies you really do wear a lot of hats mm-hmm. but what is involved in actual game development itself like what what do you do with a game to get it kind of ready and what's your favorite part so that really depends on the developer or the publisher or the designer so some designers will provide you with a game and be like you develop it some designers are going to want to be fully involved in the development of their game and some publishers are going to be the same way they might be like you're the developer please go off and do that or they might be like we need it developed in a certain way what i mean by that is it might have to do with the price point that they're looking to reach with this game it may be in a series that they need it to be a certain way so that it fits in that series of games that they're trying to release right. so there's certain parameters that you might be provided by the designer or the publisher um and even you know that fall into the manufacturing of the game so the unique thing i think about me is starting in a publisher role, I came to development in a different way than maybe some developers did. I didn't just look at it as, okay, what's the best mechanism? Let's just make this game that way. I also had in my mind constantly, what is that going to do to the manufacturing cost? What do we have for pieces if we make this change? You know, are we adding a dozen more dice? Does that make the price point go up too high? So I was constantly thinking about the cost and the manufacturing potential of the game while developing. Um, But for me, uh, and this, again, is not true of all development, but for myself, I'm huge into extensive, extensive playtesting. So I took this game across the country and actually into Europe as well, doing a lot of playtesting with folks you know, some just families or people I would pull to the side at conventions. Uh, some people I really uh, wanted their opinion, uh, people I respected in the industry. Um, Jonathan Gilmore helped me a lot with it. Uh, Joe Huber, uh, Jonathan, uh, or Joe Roshananan, and um, I even got Isaac Childress to play the game. Ooh, nice. To which he commented, <laughs> this is de- deceptively difficult. And I think I... I squealed because I was like, if the designer of Gloomhaven just said that my 20 minute game is deceptively difficult, I've, I've succeeded. (laughs) I was just so happy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and of course I wanted to make sure families could play it too. So I worked on that, but uh, he was referring to the take that that's available in the game. And I did make it so that the take that is removable so in the rules you can follow you can take out certain cards and not play that way uh for families but if you want to play it the isaac children's hard way then you can uh leave that in there (laughs) so yeah so just taking all that into consideration really listening because a lot of play testing or not i shouldn't say a lot some play testing people can feel like they're not being heard so they're spending this time playing the game and trying to give feedback and if the person running the playtesting doesn't even have a paper or pencil out it can feel futile like you were just there to you know check a box of numbers that oh i playtested it so you want to make sure that your playtesters feel heard so that a they'll want to playtest with you again but b that you're not missing anything that you may be discounting as a problem in the game so I would just, you know, take these notes and doing that, I would create charts because, again, I love data. I love Excel spreadsheets. I love creating graphs and charts and stuff. And doing that, I actually would find things that 
from just watching the playtesting, I wouldn't have seen um, things that overlapped. And I was like, oh, right, I forgot. They they ran into this too. I should look at this and see what's happening here. I should test these other things. So it would always lead to other tests, revisions, et cetera. And, you know, but then there's also things you just, you can't listen to. Like, so, so some people may have some very specific concerns that could be red herrings. For them, it doesn't work in the game, but overall it's gonna be the best thing, that type of thing. So figuring those things out and making sure that uh, the loudest or most dominant playtesters aren't what you hear, because that may have been one person, but it resonated with you. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, so keeping that data for me was huge so that I didn't, oh, I only remembered that, oh, but only one person said that. Yeah, like that yeah, wasn't, yeah. you know, so let's test for it some more to be sure. But no, that doesn't seem to be the problem they thought it was, et cetera. So yeah, so for yeah. me, it's hugely play test driven mm -hmm. um, and just listening to the community about, you know, what their concerns were. But yeah. also at the same time, then thinking about how marketable is this? Where when I approach people and say, hey, do you want to play this game? And it's speed math, do they, you know, where are their eyes shutting down? And I'm like, no, yeah. no, 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 not that type of speed math. It's fun, yeah. I swear. Mm -hmm. So figuring out what worked to get them to sit down to the table, what marketing strategy was they going to use? So having those multiple hats as exhausting as it can be, um, I yeah. think is also really beneficial because you're looking at things through all these different lenses. Okay. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, playtesting, as I say, is such an important part that is so overlooked. And I think it's also quite difficult for designer necessarily to sort of re-import those uh, comments and feedback and, and you know, mm -hmm. move the game forward. So having a, a separate person, a game developer there can actually be beneficial in that sense as well. And as you say, having this sort of right side of the you know is it actually a from a product perspective is it going to work to make mm. those changes and things oh very interesting yeah. so mm. then as a game developer when you work on things and obviously you have worked on loveless and babbage um how important are or specifically maybe for loveless and babbage how important is the topic of the game to you and maybe you can tell us a bit more about the history of the game as well and you know you were talking about Tesla versus Edison and, and how it works, you know, for museums and as a, like a teaching tool as well. So I'm wondering whether that applies to Lovers and Babbage as well. Um, it does. And so for me, I've definitely found I love historically based games. Uh, if I'm for development, that is really fun for me. There was a layer to development for Lovelace and Babbage that involved going through Ada's history, Ada Lovelace's history, yeah. seeing what people or who she would have come in contact with as Count Lovelace's uh, wife, you know, in that era of society, because, yeah. you know, her idea was, let's use this uh, engine to actually help people who are doing other types of intellectual pursuits. Yeah. And how can this huge supercomputer that Charles Babbage had created be used to further other areas of research? And so, that involved her being exposed in her life to these people. So I needed to mm -hmm. find out who her contemporaries were, who the patrons in the game were then going to be, uh, that you were seeking their patronage uh, to further your, your you know, supercomputer. Yeah, yeah. So as, as I did that, I learned a lot about her history. And for me, I loved school. I loved going to school. I loved college. If I could have been... <laughs> A student for the rest of my life, perfectly happy with that. Yeah, That's yeah. That too. was just mm -hmm. so enjoyable to me. I love writing papers, 
research papers. And, you know, we talked about when I first joined Instagram, that's kind of how I looked at it was like this research paper and making, you know, these little analyzing things and and mm-hmm. and coming up with uh, correlations in in my uh, gameplay yeah. to other games or to you know, periods of history or to books, I would, you know, kind of correlate these things and create this little short story um, as a review. And so coming at this game that's a historically based game, I also did kind of a, you know, I researched everything, wanted to make sure I was familiar with the topic, that we were true to theme as possible. You do have to sometimes take a little bit of artistic license when you're using game mechanisms to explain history. So, for example, it's an analytical engine that you're using in Lovelace Babbage to a point, right? Like the only thing that's analytical about it is that you have um, these swaps that you can do like an A to B type thing, mostly it's just simple math. So yeah. it's more the direct engine that's actually taking place. So we took a little bit of license there as far as it being uh, the analytical engine. Uh, but it was what the gameplay allowed, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you can definitely see the beginnings of it. So we kind of, I made sure that the story was that this was the beginning of the analytical engine right, yeah, yeah. and not <laughs> what it later became, which, you know, we all know um, with computers. So... You know, you, you do your best to kind of insert theme, but it being a historical theme gave me a lot of opportunity to not only just grab data from playtesting, but also go on this research historical hunt of who was alive during this time. And yeah. uh, that was really, really fun as well. And making sure that was accurate and getting their, you know, birth dates and, you know, figuring out if she would have come into contact with them um, at these parties because she was the only legitimate child of Lord Byron, you know, so she was, yeah, that was how she kind of was inserted in um, high society. Her mother wanted her to be educated and got her a tutor, uh, Mary Somerville, who's also a character in the game, um, who tutored her and then got her introduced to Charles Babbage uh, to kind of further her interest in what she called uh, poetic science. Okay. so she called herself, and I wanted actually the game to be named uh, Poetic Science, because <laughs> no, she considered yeah, yeah. herself a poetic scientist. And, you know, obviously that was a little bit of a throw to, you know, her father, Lord Byron, as well. But, yeah, so we, we ended up with Lovelace and Babbage. And, of course, there's so many engineers in this community of hobby board gaming that that right away I could see people, their eyes lighting up. Wait, there's a game about Lovelace and Babbage? Yes, I know the story. Yes, I want to play this. Um, So that was kind of our key is to make sure that they understood that it was a historical game first and a math game second. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, so that's, I really do enjoy the dev work of historical games, but I could see where some people wouldn't. If that's not your forte, if you don't want to research that whole side of things, I think if you're going to do it right and well and get it to a point where it could be used in a school setting because, you know, it has to be accurate to do so, then, you know, there's a whole other layer of development that has to happen. And maybe that's done by two people. Maybe, you know, there's the game developer and they work with a historical um, uh, person, you know, somebody who has has that uh, education uh, or background. But in this case, you know, I did both. 
Nice. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask the well what I think is the obvious question, which is, are there many um, female game developers? I think you're the first one I've heard of. Do you do you think it gives you a bit of a, a like a bit of insight, maybe, or like a different, obviously a different viewpoint, but maybe some sort of insight. I I know a lot of uh, female game designers. Yeah. I know some, you know, a lot of marketing, a uh, female marketing. Uh, executives in the industry. Mm-hmm. And then we do have a few female CEOs of publishing companies as yeah. well. Yeah. But the fact that, yeah, I could probably name them all um, means yeah. we have a long way to go yeah, in that yeah. regard. Yeah. And as far as development, that's a good question. I do, <laughs> actually, I do know a few developers. Um, okay. So you're, Helena Capel, she's at Burnt mm-hmm. Island Games, yeah. uh, does some development as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, Erica Bioris, who's a designer, but she definitely delves into development and takes that very seriously with her game designs as well. Nice. So yeah. there are some, and I'm definitely you know not thinking of a few. Oh, that's good. But so I'm not sure it gives me an edge um, at all. It's. But I do, you know, I do, I don't know how to answer this. Like, <laughs> it's, hard. it's, no, 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 you're, it's a good question, right? Um, and I love considering this notion. I'm not, I'm not sure it gives me any edge or a different viewpoint. I do want to make sure that the game is open to families and that, you know, one of the things that in developing this, that to be honest was really disheartening was I would pull people over at cons and I would get so many women who would say, oh, I'm not into this. I'm terrible at math, but I'll get my husband. He's an engineer. He'll love it. And that was really like, yeah, Yeah, it did. It really sliced me. Like to hear them say that, I was like, no, please. Uh, And I would say to them, nope. You're actually who I need to play this game. I need this play tested by somebody who doesn't think they're good at math. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to prove to you that you actually are yeah. really exactly. good at math. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure of it yeah. because you likely balance your checkbook perfectly and do all these things. And this yeah. is simple math. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be fine. Let's sit down and play. But getting them past that kind of cultural barrier where they just believed that they no this isn't me I can't mm-hmm. do this mm-hmm. this is for my husband oh that hurts so much <laughs> um, so but yeah I so I think maybe I had an edge in that I understood where they were coming from I understood the influence that made them say that and I knew that they were wrong, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Whereas perhaps if I had been, you know, a male developer, I wouldn't have wanted to push. I would have been like, okay, bring your husband over and just continued there. Yeah. Right. And being, you know, a female game developer, nope, I'm. I want you to play this game now. You're yeah. exactly who I want to play yes. this game. Mm-hmm. And so I would convince them to play. And I don't think, honestly, that a male developer maybe would have had as much success. In getting them to play as I did. Yeah, true. So, yeah. Um, you know, I would get them to play with their, and, and their kids, their kids would be there. And I'd be like, no, actually, we're looking at, you know, homeschool <laughs> approval. We need, yeah, we were yeah. going to go for a Mensa mm-hmm. approval on this. So if your kids could play, I would really, really appreciate that. And they'd be like, wait, what? My, my kids can play? Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> Everyone sit down as a family. Mm-hmm. So they would enjoy that and be like, 
Oh, because their kids had been waiting around at the con watching mom and dad, right? (laughs) So (laughs) this was an opportunity for them to all sit down and play a game and learn some history and be engaged. And what I actually found, as a side note, kids are great at this game. Kids are great at games in general. The reason being, kids will try anything. Mm -hmm. And parents will sit there and get analysis paralysis. They will ponder and consider, is this the right move? They're afraid of being embarrassed. They're afraid of doing the wrong thing. They're afraid of looking stupid. And kids are used to a school setting. They know to raise their hand and try. They have been told to do this. And they're at an age where this is normal. So they will be like, Oh, I'm just going to try it. Let, yeah. Let's run through the round and they will do it. Whereas the parents will sit there staring at it like, well, but I'm going to there's probably a better move than I'm about to take. <laughs> yeah. You know what? There probably is. <laughs> take it anyway. Just yeah. go yeah. like play the game. Enjoy it. Enjoy the camaraderie. Don't forget why you're here. You're here to play with your family, not to get the best score in math. Like yeah. just just play. And I would have to prep the parents for that and convince them to just do something, whereas the kids would already be off and running. They would be programming that computer, you know, from the word go, and the parents would pause. So what I learned was kids are amazing play testers. Mm -hmm. Kids are incredible at games. Uh, And, you know, I think parents need to trust that a little bit more and try and not worry so much that like oh if they fail they're gonna cry or they're gonna you know they're Mm. they're good they're in school they understand this type of thing and they're ready um to sit down and play a game with you as a family so kind of showing them that hey we could pick up this game and i got so many people that were after me of when's this Kickstarter happening? I'm totally buying this for my family. We had a blast. The kids actually played the game and paid attention. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and that was really, really interesting. But I always try to kind of be a proponent for that. Like my my eight-year-old now, he played Tesla versus Edison two years ago and killed us. Like, you know... (laughs) All, all four of us played, and you know, this is my, I guess at the time, 10-year-old, 8-year-old, 6-year-old, and myself. Yeah. He creamed us because he was investing in the stock and then sold it all, <laughs> and then we died horribly, and we were like, you, you, you killed it. And he was like, mm-hmm, because he understood perfectly how a stock game works. Yeah. He had no problem with it. And we didn't see it coming because he's six. Like, so <laughs> you peak you, in your I youth. think parents, <laughs> right. And I think parents just don't, you know, don't give their kids a little bit of credit there that they're willing to kind of be adventurous and try things and do it. And you'd be surprised how many times they're going to win. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't take it easy on my kids. Like they'll, we play and they, oh goodness, the day finally came when they realized that their goal is to gang up on me. <laughs> this is bad. I don't know how to explain that. This yeah. is so Solid bad. Strategy. Up until <laughs> up until two weeks ago, they would let me, but well, not let me win. They just knew I was going to win, right? Yeah. I was going to yeah. annihilate them. So they knew I'd win. And then they'd be like, okay, you won. Good for you, mom. They'd take my pieces out and be like, okay, now we play for second. Yes. So they would... Just kind of wait for me to wait for that to happen and then play. And they'd beat me sometimes. And oh, were they happy because they knew it was real. They knew it, <laughs> yeah. I didn't let yeah. them win. But mostly that's how these games played out. And then 
two weeks ago, I played PAX Premier Second Edition with um, my now 12-year-old and my eight and six-year-old playing in it as a team and myself. And my 12-year-old looked at me and said, you are not going to win this game. I don't care what I have to do, okay. but you will not win. <laughs> and I was like, ha-ha, sure, I've played this game so much, kid. Like, And usually at that game, your first play of it, you don't even know what's going on. Yeah. She understood... I'm going to credit it to me being a good teacher <laughs> because I need something to hold on to. Um, yeah. So she, I taught her the game. She understood completely how it worked. 100%. No issues with it. And most adults I explain this to, it's a learning game first and then they kind of grasp it. Yeah, yeah. She understood so well that she was like, I know I'm not going to win, but I'm going to make my sibling team over there cream you and she just <laughs> helped them along until they scored the highest score i've ever seen in the game and i had no chance there was just i was there i was just getting annihilated by her constantly no matter what i tried you trained oh, them well and yeah yeah i trained them well, well yeah. and she enjoyed it too and this was a two and a half hour game Mm. nobody left the table no. nobody needed a drink wow. nobody had to go to the bathroom they all just sat there enjoying this and i was like Brilliant. you're having yep. fun because you're killing me right and they were all like uh-huh <laughs> yeah yep and i was like this Absolutely. it's over i never win a game again because they're gonna gang up on me <laughs> but yeah i mean i think parents discount how ready kids are to play games like this mm. I, you know yeah. we live yeah. in an age where they're using technology to play games constantly they understand game theory well. And yeah. I, you know, I hope more parents will take the time to find a game that everybody could like. Maybe it's a topic that's interesting to them, as I said. Maybe it's just a game with a great gaming experience and sit yeah. down and play with them and not yeah. think, oh, hey, they can't play this. This is too hard. It's not. They will try. And, you know, you know your kids best, obviously, but you. You know, don't don't think that maybe they don't have that ability. Try it out. Bring that. Mm. Bring it to the table. Get them playing these heavier games. Definitely, um, mm -hmm. it, it could yeah. be a blast. Absolutely true. I mean, our daughter we used to play with her got for years now. I mean, she's gone away from gaming a little bit. She's in her teens now. There's other interests, but we used to play games. We used to play Lords of Waterdeep, and even nowadays she looks at games and she says, "What the age age range is? Whatever, twelve plus or something." She says, "Oh no, you could have played that when you're eight or something." And you know, yes. she, she absolutely she can you know see these games actually are easily played by younger children as well. It's not a problem, you know. As I say, you know your kids best, but we need to trust them at more. Definitely, I completely agree with that. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps the kids to have that faith in them to yeah. you know see their parents saying, "Oh, you're smart. You're smart. I know you can pick this up. Mm -hmm. Let's yeah. sit down and do this. Like you're going to be great at." Yeah. Um, and when they win these things, I think it really is a boost of confidence to them of like, oh, no, I can hold yeah, my own. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm exactly. really smart. And maybe we'll start to kind of counteract what past generations of, of women have had to deal with where they're like, oh, I'm bad at math. That's a that's yeah. a guy thing. Right. Yeah, like yeah. if we can get more of these kids playing at a young age and seeing that, oh, no, I'm good at this, too. I win these games against my brothers all the time. Like this yeah. isn't. Mm -hmm you know, for them, I'm really good at this. And having that exemplified really could be beneficial. Mm, definitely. Cool. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd love to chat a bunch longer with <laughs> yeah, all these too. things, but unfortunately <laughs> we're starting to run out of time. But I think one thing we probably should talk about is your nickname, J-Rex. And, you <laughs> yes. know, whether 
what is the story behind it all? I mean, I think people who know you would know that that's what what's all about. And we've seen the tweets about the dinosaurs and things. So, mm. where has J Rex come from, and what what is it all about? Well, yeah, that came about in my board gaming uh, ventures. Uh, one thing is, I am small. I am wee. I am not very tall, and so thus I have short arms. So I tend to not be able to reach all the way across, you know, larger game boards. So (laughs) it always came down to like, oh, Jess has short arms, help her out, reach that, do this. And people would help me with that. So that was one initiative to it. And then it became like tiny arms, large head, which is like classic T-Rex. Right. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's, you know, a scene in a movie where this villain uh, has a T-Rex that they've trained and they're sending him after, you know, the good guy and the good guy goes into like this small little crevice and the T-Rex looks at the, you know, evil monster uh, master and is like, tiny arms, big head. I can't get him. (laughs) There's nothing I can do. And so that kind of is a thing I always thought was hilarious more than should be like, I'll cackle about that for like half an hour after I see it. Cause I think it's so funny. So I've loved T-Rexes for a long time and people knew that about me and that dinosaurs are a thing. I have a like lifetime membership to the museum of science to go visit the T-Rexes or, or yeah, the yeah. dinosaurs there. So it kind of intersected. And then there's also kind of a connotation that I kill people in games that you know often (laughs) if we're playing and and understand this is when there's no experience differential so if we're sitting down at a table and everybody's a first-time player i tend to pick up on where the points are quickly yeah and so you know this is a thing where it's like if it's a first play i'm likely gonna win by a landslide because everybody else is learning and i am too but i tend to see the shiny i I tend to see where the points are and so I grab those readily and I end up with a great score. Now the next next few times we play, it usually evens out and you know it's yeah. it's a little more you know competitive. Uh, yeah. and because they've figured it out too. Um, or as Martin Fowler, who I often play with, uh, does, he then does exactly what I did. He's like, I saw what you did. I would do that. And I'm like, no, you've got the secrets. Yeah. So it became that like I was a fierce player or, uh, you know, I was, I often win the games and uh, tiny arms and yeah, likes dinosaurs. So she's J-Rex. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. That's beautiful. Right. Yeah. So we've made it. I think we've made it to the end of the episode. Yeah. Awesome. I'd say we could talk I, for ages yeah. and all that's very interesting. I know, right? Yeah, really. no, I could listen games. to you all day. You've great stories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic. I suppose this is the part where we thank everybody for listening to the show. And of course, thank Jess for being so kind as to come and share her wisdom and insights with us. It's been um, really uh, eye opening, actually. Yeah, it's been really yeah. amazing. Very inspirational, too. It's lovely hearing stories about people who were regular people and they got to be board game people and how they got yeah. there. And you're like, I, I, I want to do that so it's it's, yeah. it's great to hear how, how you did it it's just i don't know it warms my heart a bit anyway <laughs> it's, it's, awesome mm-hmm. yeah i think all we should probably ask is um if people want to get in touch with you jess where can they best reach you uh, what's the best way well i am on all social media as board game underscore girl including board game geek and instagram on twitter it's board game underscore girl one okay um but and board game girl on facebook as well so 
I kind of travel all the channels uh, as Board Game Girl, but um, you'll also find me on the YouTubing podcast for Heavy Cardboard as a guest often um, and, you know, in in just regular online board game channels. Uh, feel free to reach out. Fantastic. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for all for yeah, being here. You. And tune in for another episode. Thanks for having me. Like the tabletop inquisition. Yeah, good thanks, good. Jess. And yeah. All right. It's time to say goodbye. Thanks very much. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Goodbye.